Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at BethelPBC.us. I encourage you to open with us to the ninth chapter of the book of Hebrews. It's been a bit over a month since we've looked at our ongoing study in the book of Hebrews. We want to resume that, God willing, this morning after taking a brief break over the holidays by reading the first 10 verses of Hebrews chapter 9 and thinking together on the theme, the symbolism of tabernacle worship. And what I want to do is look back at the last verse of chapter 8. We'll read that verse in preparation for what is coming now in the first half of chapter 9. As our writer says, in that he saith, a new covenant, he hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. So you'll notice in this verse the contrast between the old covenant, which is closing, ready to vanish away, and the new covenant that has been inaugurated. The old covenant, he says, decayeth and waxeth old and is ready to vanish away. It is generally agreed upon that the book of Hebrews was written just prior to A.D. 70 when the city was ransacked by the Roman general Titus and Jerusalem was destroyed. The temple, not one stone was left on top of the other. And that's when the uh, tabernacle or the temple worship ceased. And we get a hint of that when he says it's ready to vanish away. Now notice now the reading beginning in chapter 9, verse 1. Then, verily, the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle made, the first, wherein was the candlestick and the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna and Aaron's rod that budded and the tables of the covenant. And over it, the cherubims of glory shadowing the mercy seat, of which we cannot now speak particularly. Now when these things were thus ordained, the priests went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. But into the second went the high priest alone, once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people. The Holy Ghost, this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, while as the first tabernacle was yet standing, which was a figure for the time then present, in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect, as pertaining to the conscience, which stood only in meats and drinks and divers washings and carnal ordinances, imposed on them until the time of Reformation. That's our reading for the morning. And you'll notice that it takes us back to a former day, to the tabernacle worship of the Old Testament, a worship protocol or service that is 
strange to many of us. I mean, it's foreign to our experience. We don't have these different symbols and items of furniture. Our churches are very simple. We don't have a lot of ornamentation, but this was a very elaborate kind of service. I want to introduce this passage as we speak on the contrast between what is symbolic and what is substantive. I want us to introduce this by reminding ourselves of the theme of this book. The theme of Hebrews is the superiority of Jesus Christ. Jesus is superior to the angels, we learned in chapter 1, to Moses, who was the premier figure besides Abraham in Jewish history. But Jesus is superior to Moses. He's superior to Joshua, we learned in chapter 4. He's superior to Aaron and Aaron's priesthood, as we learned in chapters 7 and 8. Now in chapters 9 and 10, he's going to talk about the next step in the progression of thought here, and that is the superiority of the new covenant that Jesus inaugurated, what we call the gospel dispensation. The superiority of the new covenant to the old covenant. The superiority of, if you please, of the gospel to the law. And he makes two points in this passage this morning. First, the old covenant was only intended to be temporary. God never intended for the law to last forever. Galatians tells us that, doesn't it? That the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, but after Christ has come, we don't need a tutor we don't need a servant anymore. We have the real thing. And you'll see that in the 13th verse, as already mentioned, that the law was only temporary. He says, now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. You see it also in verse 8 of our reading today. The way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, while as yet the first tabernacle was still standing. You see it again in verse 9 when he says, it was a figure for the time then present. And then again in verse 10, when he said that the law was imposed on them until the time of reformation. Now that language indicates that a better day is coming, the time of reformation. Interestingly, this is the only time in the New Testament that this Greek word, translated reformation, appears. And it literally means to straighten out what is out of line. Reformation, to straighten something that is not in line. The point is that the new order that Christ came to establish, or the new covenant, if you please, is a day in which everything has been put right. It's a complete reshaping of the old by a new and a better system of worship. What we have today is so much better than what the Jews had under the old covenant. Now you might say, preacher, that's Hard to believe because, again, you've described a lot of ornamentation and elaborate rituals and ceremonies. It looks like it was very ostentatious, and what we have is so simple. But here's the point in Hebrews. What we have is the real thing. and What they had was just figurative or symbolic. And that brings us to the second major point of this passage. The old covenant was a symbol. You see the word figure in verse 9, which was a figure for the time then present. It was figurative. It was symbolic of a greater reality to come. What you read about in the worship of Israel in the olden times was 
symbolic of a greater reality. That was the shadow, this is the substance. That was the type, this is the antitype. That was the copy, this is the original. That was a model of the real. Our writer's point in this passage is that the pro forma manner of worship that we see under the Old Covenant was anticipatory of a better order. The symbolic prepared people for the coming of the real thing. And I want to make a side note here, my friends. It is interesting to notice when we start thinking of symbolism that all mystery religions rely heavily on the use of the symbolic. And people tend to think that symbolism, that the symbolic is a form of higher knowledge that only the experts or the initiates can understand. But you know, the biblical focus is the very opposite of that. The biblical focus is that the symbolic or the figurative is elementary school. And the substantive and the real is the graduate level of study. And you know, there are so many symbols in our nation. There are symbols in Washington, D.C., all over Washington, D.C. There are symbols on monuments and symbols in the architecture of that city, the way it's laid out. And somebody says the symbolic is where it's at. But I'm telling you, the symbolic is just the elementary school. That's child's play. But the substantive, the real, that's what the adults are meant to understand. And I think this is important because so many Christian churches, quote unquote, are deeply steeped in ritual and symbolic. You know, they have ceremonies. They have their incense offerings and their sacrifices and their different ornamentation. And they say everything is symbolic of uh, something else. And we say that is where it's at. That's the real thing. That's more akin to the Old Testament law, my friends. And the gospel of Christ that is simply proclaimed when the congregation meets together in the presence of God to worship his name, this is the substance. You say, well, I prefer the symbolic, Brother Mike. And that's like a grown-up saying, I prefer to go back to kindergarten. Because the fact is, the old has vanished away. The old has waxed old and decayed, and it has served its purpose and now Jesus Christ has come, and we don't have to rely on symbolism or symbology anymore. The figurative has given way to the real McCoy. Interestingly, there are only two symbols in the New Testament order of church life. You say, I wish we had more paintings, pictures, statues. I wish we had more ornamentation. Well, we have two pictures in the church, but both of them point to the reality. We have water baptism. Right? And we have the Lord's Supper. And those are the only two symbolic services that we have. And both of them proclaim the same message that is proclaimed from the pulpit. Now to show how the symbols of the Old Covenant pointed toward the reality of the New, our writer developed some of the key features of the original tabernacle worship. And the primary passage that this is connected to in the Old Testament is in Exodus chapters 25 and 26. And I want you to, if you would allow me this morning, to transport you back to the desert after the children of Israel came out of the land of Egypt. And they've been at Mount Sinai and received the law. And I want you to imagine in your sanctified imagination that you are a Jew living in a tent in the wilderness. You have left your home. You've crossed the Red Sea with the nation of Israel. 
in a mighty deliverance from God, and you are and your family are living in a tent with other Jewish people living in their tents, and you're journeying through the wilderness like nomads in the desert. And I want you to think about the way that their community life was structured around the tabernacle, which is mentioned in verse 1. Then verily the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and a worldly or an earthly sanctuary, for there was a tabernacle made. And the first thing that you would do when you woke up in the morning, let's say it's the Sabbath day, and you come out of your tent and you stretch, the first thing that you would notice was a tabernacle which had a pillar of cloud or smoke marking that place. You know, the pillar of fire, a boat over the tabernacle by night, the pillar of cloud by day. And the first thing that would have caught your eye as you looked around the camp was you would have seen the tabernacle with its pillar of cloud there in the center of the camp. Now, the word tabernacle means tent. These people in the wilderness under Moses' leadership did not have permanent houses. They didn't have foundation and uh, bricks and mortar, but they had tents. And each family carried their tents with them, and they lived in the desert. It would have been an exciting time, but it would have been a very frightening kind of experience, wouldn't it? If you were out there and you didn't know what tomorrow held, you didn't have a restaurant on every corner where you could get something to eat. You didn't have, you know, the basic amenities of life that we all depend upon. But you were a religious community, a theocratic community built around the relationship that you had with the God of heaven. That's the Jews in the wilderness. By the way, they were out there in that wilderness for 40 years, right? Living in tents. And uh, it reminded them that this world was not their permanent home. They were just pilgrims and strangers. And that's a lesson we need to be reminded of. Now, I'm not asking you all to sell your homes and to live in pup tents or Coleman tents, uh, you know, but because uh, most people would say, no, no, thank you. I need a heat in the winter and air conditioning in the summer, and I need electricity, and I need all of the amenities of modern life. I don't want to live in a tent. I don't mind going camping. And you know, if you're like me, you went camping one time, and you said, I've been there, done that, and I think that's uh, good enough for me. But some people love it. But I'll tell you, after 40 years, you'd be tired of it, wouldn't you think? And you would say, well, I want to put my roots down. And what happened is this migrant community would move from place to place. They, uh, one day they would be here, and tomorrow the cloud would start moving, and that was their sign that they needed to move with it. And God led them for 40 years through the wilderness as they lived in their tents. And there was a single central tent called the tabernacle in the middle again of the camp. This was the portable sanctuary that God instructed Moses to build. It was approximately 30 feet long and about 15 feet wide, not counting the outer courtyard that surrounded it. So it was a pretty sizable structure, and all of the Jews, a group of people over one, probably about two million strong when they first came out of Egypt, were positioned around the tabernacle. Now you know, don't you, there were 12 tribes in Israel, and those tribes were positioned according to God's prescribed plan, three on the north, three on the south, 
three on the east and three on the west, with the tabernacle in the center. And as they moved, journeyed through the wilderness, the tabernacle would move and the tribes would move in that format through the desert. And the tabernacle proper is termed the sanctuary, as you see in verse 1, a worldly sanctuary. And that word sanctuary gives us our concept of sacred space. Sanctuary means a sacred place. And it was therefore separated from the rest of the camp by a curtain or a veil made of fine linen. It's a translucent veil that the ordinary Jew could look through and see what was happening on the inside. There was another veil, though, between the holy place, which was the outer court. You have the courtyard, then you have the holy place marked by the boundary of this curtain all around it, or this veil. And then on the inside, there is another place called the Most Holy, or the Holy of Holies, the holiest of all in our text. Verse 3, after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all. And only one person could go in there, the high priest, and he could go in only one time a year on the Day of Atonement. Now, all of this was prescribed by God in the order of worship he gave to Moses. And the details for the making of this tabernacle and the ceremonies and services that took place there were very elaborate. God's very detailed. And it reminds us that God is serious about how he intends to be worshipped. We can't just make our own rules as we go. God says, make everything according to the pattern that I showed you in the mount. Now, I said that this tabernacle was the center of the nation. And it was positioned in the center of the 12 tribes in the midst of the camp because it was intended to teach at least three lessons. Number one, it reminded them that their worship of God and their relationship to him was central in the life of the nation. You know, that's something we need to remember, my friends. God is not just an add-on. He's not just another item in the list of priorities in our lives. He is to be the very center he is to be the very heart and soul of who we are. We get our identity from him. Everything we do should revolve around worshiping him and our union and relationship with him. That's why it's called in the Old Testament the tent of the congregation. That is, it's the place that everybody shared in common because God was central to the congregation of Israel. It's also called the tent of meeting in the Old Testament because it was the place where the people could come to meet God. The tabernacle symbolized the presence of God in the midst of his people. And if you wanted a good definition of what the church is supposed to be in the New Testament, it's God's people with their Lord in their midst. He's right in the center. And everything that we are and everything we do should center, should focus upon him. Just as the tabernacle was the center of the camp. And again, this symbolized the presence of God in their midst. It was the house of God. It's a physical location where the people could go to meet him. Now, God, of course, cannot be contained in a building made with hands. You can't put God in a box. You can't uh, just uh, confine him to one place. The Bible teaches that he is omnipresent. He fills heaven and earth. Jeremiah 23, verse 24 says, and as Paul said on Mars Hill, Acts chapter 17, he dwelleth not in temples made with hands, 
neither is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needeth anything. In other words, God is immense and his presence goes beyond these four walls. But yet somebody says, well, then where can I find him? Well, God gave his people in the Old Testament a place where they could go to meet with him, where he promised to dwell there and where they could go to encounter him and to draw nigh to him. That's why it's called the tent of meeting. It was a physical location. This was God's address in the nation of Israel. The third thing that this tabernacle is intended to teach is it's intended to point us to the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Here's an interesting verse in John chapter 1, verse 14. Then the word was made flesh and tabernacled or dwelt among us. That word dwelt in your English Bible literally means tabernacled. He assumed a tent. He had a mission to perform and therefore I think we can say based on that verse in John 1.14 that the Old Testament tabernacle pointed toward the body that Jesus Christ assumed when he came to this earth as God made flesh. And of course later you know the tabernacle that Moses had became a temple. Remember, David wanted to build a permanent house for the Lord because God's people had worshipped God in a tent for so long. And God said, no, you can't build it, but your son Solomon will build it. And Solomon built that magnificent temple, you remember, which was the permanent address for God in Israel. So the tabernacle became the temple. Jesus' body is called the tabernacle in John 1.14. He also refers to his body as a temple. When he says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it again. And they said, uh, this temple was 46 years in building. How can you raise it in three days? But they understood not, says the writer, that he spake to them of the temple of his body. So the body of Jesus is compared to a tabernacle, compared to the temple. This tabernacle pointed to the incarnation of Christ. Now notice, he goes on to say in our text this morning, that tabernacle worship, which was centered in this tent, was divided into two parts. He says, first, the holy place, the sanctuary, he calls it. And again, that word sanctuary means the sacred or the holy place. And only the priests could go into the sanctuary, the holy place. And then he says there was the holy of holies, or the holiest of all, the most holy place, which only the high priest could go in, and he could only go in once a year. Now, the average Joe, Okay, you're with me and we are Jews living in the wilderness in the days of Moses and we've woke up on Sabbath morning and we've looked and we've seen the tabernacle and we've made our way there and we've stood in the uh, courtyard and we've looked through that translucent veil made of fine linen and we can see the priests who are there placing the showbread on the tables, making sure that olive oil, sweet olive oil is in the menorah or the candelabra, the lampstand, we see them there also making sure that the incense is burning on the incense altar. But then we see this thick curtain that separates the most holy place from the holy place. So there are two parts to the tabernacle. And only the priests, the sons of Levi, could enter into the holy place and only the high priest could go into the most holy place now let's talk about the furniture that is there in the outer court or the holy place first he says in verse 2 there was the candlestick 
or again the lampstand or the menorah. And you've probably seen pictures of this. It was a single piece of gold of beaten work which had a central stem and then branches coming off to each side. Seven lights or lamps in total. And this was perpetually burning. It burned day and night. The priests were responsible for making sure that it was filled with oil. They put wicks in the oil. They kept it burning 24-7 perpetually. And it represented the witness of divine truth, the knowledge of God. It was the light of knowledge shining in a dark world. The Jews were given the light of God's truth, were they not? And that candlestick reminded them that they had been given the truth of God as revealed in the Old Testament. And then there was the table of showbread. It says in verse 2, a table and the showbread. And the table of showbread had 12 loaves on it in two rows of six, representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Each loaf represented one tribe. And the priests were responsible every Sabbath day for replacing those loaves with a fresh loaf of bread. So those loaves would stay for a week, and then the priest would replace them on the night before the Sabbath day with fresh loaves. And these 12 loaves reminded them that God is the provider and the nourisher of his people. The bread that they needed to sustain life was given from God. So the lampstand reminded them that they had been given the deposit of God's truth, the light of knowledge. The loaves reminded them of the providence of God in feeding them and taking care of them. And then it says that there was a second veil in verse 3, and this is the heavy curtain that separated the Holy of Holies, or the Sanctum Sanctorum, from the holy place. And it was so thick that it could not be torn in two by a team of many horses. And it was decorated with embroidered work of cherubims and all sorts of interesting detail. And it was very beautiful. And the curtain, by the way, this is what happened when Jesus died. You remember it says the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. That's what tore when Jesus died. It tore in two. And that's symbolic says Paul in Ephesians 2, how that the middle wall of partition between Jews and Gentiles and between us and God has been torn down and Christ, who is our peace, has made both one. So there's great symbolism here. Somebody says, Brother Mike, this symbolism is so interesting. This is where it's at. And I'm telling you, dear friends, again, I emphasize that the symbolic is elementary school. We are living in the reality. Now, it's, it is interesting to see how the symbolic pointed forward to the real. But still, my beloved, I wouldn't ever want to go back because we have the proclamation of the true and the real and the genuine article. Now, don't we? We don't need the figurative anymore. But you have this heavy curtain and standing immediately before the curtain at the entrance to the Holy of Holies, is the altar of incense, you see in verse 4, which had the golden censer. And on this altar of incense, the sweet fragrance of incense burned perpetually. You know, the camp of Israel, the closer you got to the tabernacle, you would begin to experience the aroma. And there are a few things that make a mark on our memory, like the sense of smell, right? 
sometimes I will get a whiff of some aroma or fragrance in the air and it'll take me back to my childhood. <laughs> Has that ever happened to you? A serendipitous moment, you know. And the camp of Israel, though in outlying areas, probably had the regular aromas or fragrances of a, of a community. The closer you got to the worship of God, the fragrance was very strong. And as the people came near, they would smell this incense that burned perpetually, and the priests again were responsible for keeping it burning. You say, Brother Mike, what does that represent? The altar of incense speaks of the prayers of God's people. Interestingly, there's a verse in Revelation chapter 8, verse 3, when it says, Another angel came and stood at the altar having a golden censer, and there was given unto him much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense, which came with the prayers of the saints, ascended up before God out of the angel's hand. You know, the prayers of God's people are a wonderful fragrance to our God in heaven. He is pleased with the prayers of his people just as the good fragrance of incense burning would please your senses. It's a sweet-smelling savour to him. And furthermore, this speaks of the sacrifice of Christ. For in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says that Jesus offered himself for us as a sweet-smelling savour or fragrance unto God. So you see how all of this is symbolic. Then as you go into, and you would never get to go in there, and I wouldn't either, but as the high priest went in behind that big curtain into the most holy place. It says the Ark of the Covenant was there. Now this is the only item of furniture in the most holy place. The Ark of the Covenant was there. And this is something that you would never see in your lifetime. You say, well, I've seen it. I saw Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Well, forget all about what you saw in Indiana Jones. That is an artistic license at work there in that movie. But obviously it was a very elaborate piece of furniture, but only one man knew what it looked like, and he only could see it once a year. Now, you know, a high priest might function for a few years and then another high priest. So you have the priests, and then you have the high priest. And the priests came into the outer court and worked on the showbread and the lampstand, made sure that all of that was serviced on a daily basis. But one time a year, the high priest would take the sin offering from the brazen altar, which was out in the courtyard. It was outside the holy place, the brazen altar where the sacrifice was made. He would take the blood of that offering and he would sprinkle the altar where he'd made the sacrifice. Then he would come straight in and sprinkle the altar of incense. You know, our prayers are accepted by God because of the blood of Christ. When you go to God in prayer, my friends, you don't go based on your own merits. You go through the merits of Jesus. That's why we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. That's why we say, Lord, bless us for Christ's sake. Not bless me because I deserve it, but bless me because what Jesus, by him, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God. Our prayers are acceptable to God by Jesus Christ, says Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2. He would sprinkle the altar of sacrifice, then he would sprinkle the altar of incense, then he would go behind the veil, and it says in Hebrews chapter 9, in verse number 7, into the second went the high priest alone, once every year, not without blood, 
His only right to go in there is not his own pedigree or his position as a high priest. He had to have blood. If he went in without blood, my beloved, that was an audacious act that would incur the wrath of God. He could not go in without blood, which he offered first for himself and then for the sins of the people. Why did he have to offer the blood first for himself? Because he was a sinner too. You see, the symbolism as it's played out by men on this earth falls short of the reality because the high priest himself was a sinner. We have a great high priest, don't we? And that's the theme of Hebrews. Our Lord Jesus Christ, who is superior to the angels and to Moses and to Aaron and to Joshua and to all of those who've gone before. He is holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners, we learned in chapter 7. He doesn't have to offer sacrifice first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He offered sacrifice in our place simply for the sins of his elect. Jesus Christ, my friends, was not a sinner. But you see, the high priest had to sprinkle the blood upon the Ark of the Covenant with its lid, the mercy seat. Now let's talk for just a minute about that Ark, and we'll try to wrap this up real quickly. The Ark of the Covenant was the pledge of God's presence with his people. Here's a verse in Exodus 25. Remember I said the background behind this passage in Hebrews 9 is Exodus 25 and 26. You may want to go back and read those chapters on your own. But in Exodus 25:22, he says this, Thou shalt put the mercy seat above upon the ark. Now, the mercy seat was the lid of this box that was the ark. The ark of the covenant was overlaid within and without, on the inside and the outside, with pure gold. It had rings in it because they were not to touch it with their hands when they transported it. When they pitched tent and moved, they had a special protocol for placing staves into those rings and Several priests would stand on one side and some on the other, and they would carry it with these sticks, you know, going through the rings on the side of the ark. They were not to touch it with their hands. And God says, thou shalt put the mercy seat above upon the ark, and in the ark you're to put the testimony that I shall give thee. The testimony is the law. Now, God gave who the law? Moses on Mount Sinai, remember? The first tables he broke when he came down. He saw the people dancing around Aaron's golden calf and he became angry and he broke the law. Symbolic, no doubt, of man breaking God's law in his own hands. But then God gave him another set of tables and these ten commandments that you read in Exodus 20, thou shalt have no other gods before me, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven. Remember the Sabbath. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not commit adultery. And so forth. He put the two tables of the law, the testimony, in the ark. And it was covered by the lid, the mercy seat. God says, Exodus 25:22, And there I will meet with thee. And I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubims, which are upon the Ark of the Testament. It's called the Ark of the Testimony because the law, the testimony, was there, which testified to the holiness of God. He said, I will meet with you and commune with you on the mercy seat above the Ark between the cherubims. That's where I will meet with you. So this Ark of the Covenant was symbolic of the presence of God with his people. 
Interestingly, that's why in 2 Kings 19.15, Hezekiah's prayer and also Psalm 80 verse 1, the psalmist David's words, God is called, O thou that dwellest between the cherubims. Where does God live? He dwells on the mercy seat. Between these two winged lions on top of the lid of the ark. In the ark there was the pot of manna, which represents God's providence for his people. Exodus chapter 16, verse 32, Moses said to Aaron, This is the thing which the Lord commanded me. Fill an omer of manna, put it in a pot to be kept for your generations, that they may see the bread wherewith I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you forth from the land of Egypt. Moses said to Aaron, Take a pot, put an omer full of manna therein, and lay it up before the Lord to be kept for your generations. So it says Aaron laid it up before the testimony or beside the law in the Ark of the Covenant. So in the ark, you have the two tables of the law, which represent the holiness of God. You have this golden pot of manna, which represents God's providence. And our text says also Aaron's rod that budded. Now you can read that story in number 17. When there was a showdown at the OK Corral, and the sons of Korah had challenged Aaron's right to be the priest, and they said, we can be priests too. And God said, let every man take his rod, his stick, his staff, and put it on the ground. Then the next morning when they awoke, one rod had blossomed. Now, a stick doesn't have any life in it, does it? (laughs) Because it has no root system. It's an old dry stick, but Aaron's rod budded. It blossomed with almonds. It began to bear fruit, the almond fruit. And the rest of the sticks were just old dry dead sticks. And God is saying by that that Aaron's priesthood is the one I recognize. It's something that happened miraculously. Aaron's rod budded, symbolizing the supernatural, perpetual, and living priesthood of Jesus Christ. And then there were these two tables of the law in the Ark of the Covenant, which again condemned the sinner and confronted the people with their sins and failures. On top of the Ark were these two cherubim. You remember which creature it was that barred the way to paradise in Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve were cast out of the Garden of Eden? He put a cherubim at the entrance to the garden with a flaming sword. And these, these two cherubims reminded the people of the seriousness of the holy God's law that there was no access to God. The cherubim. So it's a pretty austere kind of arrangement. But you see, all of the fear and judgment and holiness that we see in the ark is covered with a mercy seat, a lid, which is called the mercy seat, which represented the covering or the atonement. By the way, the word atonement means covering, that God would make for his people. Psalm 32, 1, David says, Blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, very same word, mercy seat, propitiation. This is Hebrews 9 where he says that the mercy seat was on top of the ark. There's only one other time that the, this Greek word is used in the New Testament. And it's in Romans 3.25 when it says Jesus Christ was set forth to be a propitiation for our sins. That word is the same as mercy seat. The one who removes the wrath of God. You see, my beloved, the furniture, the tabernacle symbolized God's presence, God's holiness, but it also symbolized God's grace that was coming to us through Jesus Christ our Lord. And the high priest went in to the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement, and he sprinkled the blood on the mercy seat. And without that blood, and without that lid, 
You know, the all-seeing eyes of God symbolized in those cherubim with their eyes pointed down toward the law would look directly on the law, but with this covering. My beloved, God does not look directly at His law when it comes to His relationship with you. He sees you and me through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? How beautiful is the symbolism here? What does all of this symbolize? The whole tabernacle points to Jesus Christ. The whole tabernacle points to Christ. Jesus was made under the law. The New Testament tells us he came to fulfill and to keep that law. And he did so by offering himself as the ultimate sacrifice for our sins. And through his blood, the justice of a holy God upon a broken law is propitiated and satisfied. Now Jesus is the bread of heaven that nourishes our hungry souls and this gospel that we proclaim in the new covenant is the light that shines perpetually into the darkness of this world. The whole tabernacle pointed to the coming of Christ. And the good news of what we proclaim this morning in the church, the new covenant. Verses 9 and 10, therefore, teach us that the law was a figure for the time then present, in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices, that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience. For those services, he says, stood only in meats and drinks and different washings and carnal ordinances. They only dealt with the externals. It couldn't do anything for your heart, your conscience. You could make your sacrifice, but it wouldn't really help you. It wouldn't give peace to your heart. This is why what we have is superior, my friends. The old covenant anticipated a better covenant that was to come. Consequently, today, we have a superior covenant. He says in verse 10, the time of reformation has come. We have the reality, not the figure, the substance, not the shadow. For the time of straightening that which is out of line, the time of the inauguration of the new order has come in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. You and I have spent a few moments with Moses and the children of Israel in the wilderness this morning. You've also sat here in Bethel Church, worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ for his finished work. And I am of the opinion, and I think it's founded in the Holy Scriptures, that what we're doing today, though more simple, and it may seem more streamlined, yet it is more real, because it's the substance, not just the shadows. C.S. Lewis wrote a book one time called The Shadowlands. That's where the Jews were living. That's where many people who are still trying to keep the law are living. They're just still living in the shadowlands. But my beloved, we're partaking of the actual fruit of the tree, aren't we? For we have the real thing. Thanks be to God this morning. Amen.